welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. We're starting a new series uh, today. They'll take us uh, uh, several weeks, uh, probably about the maybe second week in June, something like that. And uh, it's based on the book of James. And I think it's probably a natural extension of what we've been talking about over the last weeks as we've talked about uh, our need to outflow, our need to uh, uh, reach out into uh, minister to others. Because James uh, really deals with that a lot. It, it talks about how uh, we need to prove the faith that we have uh, by our actions, by our ministry uh, uh, that we give to others. So hopefully this fits in really well uh, where we have been. Uh, a lot of Bible scholars uh, see uh, real similarities between the book of James and uh, in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gave. And it's kind of natural that ought to happen for this reason. One, James was a disciple of Jesus. Not only a disciple of Jesus, he was a half-brother of Jesus. So it's probably only a natural thing that some of the stuff that James wrote, of course, it's all God inspired, God directed it anyway, but as far as God using his personality in it, it's a natural thing that it would, that it would sound somewhat, uh, like some of the teachings of, uh, of Jesus. Uh, the book of James, uh, we're calling this series, uh, moving toward Christian maturity, because that's kind of what the book, uh, is about, the reason he was writing it. The main theme is spiritual maturity, us growing as Christians, as God would want us to. The key verse that kind of lets us know or keys us in to what the rest of the book is going to be about is found in verse 4. And I'll uh, read it now, but we'll also talk about the verse later. But verse 4 uh, of chapter 1 says this, uh, And let steadfastness, some translations say patience, but let steadfastness or patience have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he's telling us at the very outset of the letter that this letter is to help Help us be more of what God wants us to be. It's designed in a way to help us, help us mature, help us to grow to be more and more like Jesus. The first main theme of the book uh, deals with how you and I might relate to testings in our lives. Uh, but he kind of breaks it down in a couple of categories. Uh, he deals to begin with in verse 1 through 12, which is what we will talk about today. He deals with external trials. That's things that are kind uh, forced upon us, circumstances that we face uh, in life. But we also have in, internal temptations, and, and that'll be uh, next week, the Lord willing, that we get to gather together here. So our, our focus today is, is this. There's going to be these external trials, uh, things that hit our lives, and we as believers need to kind of know how to deal with those. Now, before we talk about that, we don't need to jump over verse 1. Because sometimes people tend to do that. Uh, James gives a greeting in verse 1, and that greeting really has some significance in it. Uh, sometimes you might just jump past that in the Bible, but you don't need to because that greeting at the first of an epistle may give you some insight as to what the epistle is going to be about. And I think that's true in James. I want you to notice what James writes. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the reason I want to point that out to you, because of one thing I said earlier, he was the half-brother of Jesus. 
Now, you know, I'm just thinking it you know, it's, would be kind of a, a human tendency if you were the half-brother of Jesus and you're writing a letter to a group of believers that you might want to say, I'm James, I'm the half-brother of Jesus. But he didn't do that. James was also the pastor, the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, that first church in Jerusalem. So James could have started this letter out by saying, I'm James, I'm the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem, and I'm also the half-brother of James, or half-brother of Jesus. But he didn't do that. Instead, in humility, he simply says, I'm a servant of God. And the word for servant means a bond slave. Totally sold out. I'm a, I'm a servant of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think maybe that lets us know a little bit the tone of the letter. Because he shows outright humility in the front of the letter. And we need to show humility in the way we serve others. In the way that we that we serve Christ. And he's addressing it to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Because of either force or their choice, uh, a lot of the Jews had left Jerusalem. And they were scattered abroad. And they had carried their faith with them. And he writes to them and he says, greetings. And that word in the Greek more or less means he's wishing joy and happiness for them. So in light of the fact that he's wishing joy and happiness for their lives, he's going to start out with that first theme I mentioned a moment ago, trying to help them understand how they can endure trials when they hit their lives, how to make it through the trials of, of life. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about how we can try and get through the trials. You ever seen a bumper sticker or maybe the phrase, uh, when life gives you lemons, uh, make lemonade? Uh, it's easier to say than do, isn't it? But really, biblically, that is a true statement. We get a lot of lemons tossed our way in life. God wants us to learn how to take those lemons and, and let them be something good in our lives. And that's kind of what James is talking about. How we can have patience or steadfastness when we're facing external trials in life. So three main things uh, today. First of all, we, we need to do this. We need to endure the trials of life with a joyous expectation. If you're going to grow spiritually and have more patience or more steadfastness in the trials of life, you need to learn how to approach those trials by having this joyous expectation in, in your life. He writes in verse 2 through 4, uh, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you, meet when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or patience, some translations say. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now what he tells us to do is kind of almost the opposite of what our flesh wants to do. Because we don't tend to really enjoy trials when they come our way. We, we don't like the bad stuff. We want to kind of get away from the bad stuff. And yet he tells us here that we ought to count it as joy. We ought to have a joyous expectation when we're facing trials in, in our life. Now to help us break that down, we're going to look at four words, four main words. Uh, three of them are found in verse 2, 3, 4, and then the, the fourth word is found in verse 5. That will actually be in, in our second main point. But think about the word count for a minute, because he tells us to count it all joy. The trials of life, he's saying. When we are meeting all kinds of trials, various kinds of trials in our life, he's telling us that we ought to count it with all joy. Now, I want you to notice some things, you know, really read it closely what he's saying. He, he doesn't, James doesn't say, if you face trials. Did you notice that? 
He said, when you face trials in your life. So just up front, you know, you may be ready to go home now because I'm encouraging you so much. But up front, I want to tell you, you're going to have trials in your life. You understand that? That's what he's telling us. We will face trials in our life. Now, to really emphasize that, Jesus told his disciples that they'd face trials. He, he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. He said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. I mean, who do we think we are to think we're the followers of Jesus and they, the, the world beat up on him and, and us to expect the world not to beat up on us? He said, in the world, ye shall have tribulation. I mean, he's telling just outright, you're going to have these tough times. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then Peter kind of just strengthens that even more by saying, Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. In other words, don't think it's strange. Expect it to happen. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. He said when you are facing tests or trials in your life, the word that he uses in the Greek uh, literally means kind of putting something to the proof or, or experiment, you know, by adversity. It's like God is kind of testing you to, to help you understand that your faith in Him is really valid. And the faith that you have in Him can, can help you make it through the, the trials that you experience in, in, in your life. I want you to notice also that James, he said you will have trials. But he also said it will be not just one type of trial. He said it's more than one trial. It will be trials. It will be a you know, multitude of trials. But he, he says that it's going to be various kinds of trials. The, the word literally means very colored and the word was used in the Greek culture to describe someone that's weaving a blanket or maybe weaving a rug and they're bringing in these various color threads and the weaver is in, is putting them in, you know, one at a time and, and keeps building the rug until at the end of it, you can see what the rug's supposed to look like in all of its beauty. And I think that's kind of the idea that James is wanting to give us here. God, as he lets us go through trials in our life, very colored trials, various trials in our life, he's inserting those things into our life. And in, in, in doing so, he's weaving us into being what he wants us to be. To, to where ultimately the, the picture of who we are is what his goal is for our lives. He wants to use the trials in, in our lives to bring about the, the change that makes us more and more like him. And he has the audacity to tell us, count it all joy. <laughs> the word for count is actually a banking term or a financial term. And, and it means to evaluate it as so, or to chalk it up as so, or to mark it down uh, as, as so, or to regard it as so. He's telling us that when trials, when difficult times come in our lives, we're to evaluate it as positive. 
as something to be cheerful about, something that's making us calmly well off. We're, we're, to, we're to chalk it up as something good, not something negative, not something bad. But because God sent it into our lives for a reason of making us more like Him. You may have heard this phrase before also, uh, outlook determines outcome. Have you heard that before? See, our, our outlook of something, the way we view it in advance, kindly causes us to respond in certain ways. And, and if we will have the outlook before trials come into our life, that it's actually a sign that God's doing something good, that God's working in our lives, that God's wanting to change some things in our lives for the better. If we would view it on the front end of that being true, then it will help us to approach the trial with the right attitude. And if we have the right attitude approaching the, the trial, hopefully we'll take the right actions as, as we are going through the trial. Now, before I move on, I, I want you to understand he didn't say, count it all happiness. There's a difference between happiness and joy. He, he's not saying when you're going through a trial, be happy about it. <laughs> you know, I, I've met people like that that seem like that there all the time. And I think part of the time they're lying through their teeth, you know. How's it going? Oh, everything's great. Everything's fine, you know. He's not saying be happy about negative things. See, here's the difference maybe between happiness and joy. Happiness focuses upon the event or the events that's going on in your life. Joy focuses on God. Do you see the difference? It can be very bad events, very bad trials that you're facing. He's not calling you to be happy about it. He's calling you in the midst of the trial to have joy because you're focused on God. And you're focused upon the fact that God's actually wanting to do something good in your life, which brings us to our second word, and the second word is no. For you know, he said, count it all joy, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. God's allowing us to be tested. He's allowing us to go through trials to produce something good in our lives. The word he uses for no means to absolutely know, to absolutely, completely know that that testing, that proving that you're going through is going to produce something. The word proving kind of he gives a similar idea. Let, let's, let me illustrate it like this. this. This man's out digging and he finds a gold mine, or he thinks it's a gold mine. Looks like gold, this big vein, he thinks gold, so he takes a sample. And he takes that sample in to have it tested to be sure that it's really gold, to be sure it's authentic. Until it's proven to be gold, it might just be a bunch of shiny rock that he's found. And not be valuable at all. So what God is, is doing, he's proven us to where we understand our faith is like gold. Our faith is really valid. Our faith can get us through the circumstances and the trials of life. Our, our faith, as you go through that, can produce something that's beneficial in your life. It's trying to accomplish something, to finish something, to fashion this thing called steadfastness. And the word means to have a cheerful or a hopeful endurance, a, a constancy. In other words, even in the midst of trials, God is our center. We're constantly focused and founded upon Him. And the root word, kind of that it's built from, it tells us to do the exact opposite of what we want to do in our flesh. What happens when you're in a bad time and you're facing a trial? You want it to end, don't you? You want to find a way to get up from underneath it. But, but the word that's used here actually 
tells us that we're to stay under it. We're to stay behind it. We're to remain. We're to undergo. We're to bear the trial. We're to have the fortitude. We're to persevere. Because what God is doing, he's trying to bring about steadfastness in your life under trials. You see, when God does that in your life and you've made it through one trial, that gives you the faith to believe you can make it through the next trial. And the next trial. And the next trial that comes to your life. God's not trying to send tribulations and trials into your life to be mean to you or to make you bitter. God wants to use those trials to make you better. God wants to use those trials to make you more like Jesus, to make you more like his purposes for your life. God wants to use those trials in, in your life for, for your good and for his glory. That's why he sends those trials. Paul said it like this in Romans. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purposes. God is a great enough God. If you love him, you need to understand that whatever he's doing in your life, he's doing it for a purpose. He's a big enough God that he can somehow make it work for good. And you might not be able to understand it in in the middle of the moment that you're facing it, but he can turn it into good. In, In Romans 5, he said this, More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. He's saying, we're, you know, we've got joy even in the midst of suffering because we know this, knowing that suffering produces endurance. As you make it through it, it gives you spiritual endurance and fortitude in your life. And that endurance produces character. As you go through the trials of life with God helping you and working you through that trial, on the other side of it, it's developing your character. And character produces hope. In other words, as God helped us through the trial, through the tribulation, through the problem that we're facing, and he's building our character, now we have hope the next time a trial comes our way, we can make it through because he helped us with the last one, as I alluded to a moment ago. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. Through it all, no matter what you're facing, you need to operate with the mentality that God loves you and God has a purpose and a reason for it and God is wanting you to become more and more and more like him. Plenty of characters in the Bible we could use to illustrate it, but let me use Joseph just for a moment. Joseph, in the Old Testament, God put him through about 13 years of trials trying to get him to the point that he wanted him. He faced things like his brothers being jealous his brothers planning to kill him, and then they decided, no, we'll be a little bit good too. We'll just sell him into slavery. Then he was put into slavery, and while he was a slave, he was accused of rape that he was innocent of, and thrown into prison, all to get him to the place where he can interpret a dream for someone that's going to be in Pharaoh's court. And later on, he gets a chance to interpret a dream for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh makes him a leader. So he's in a capacity where he can help his own people when famine hits the land. And Joseph even looked at his brothers when they met and they realized who he was. He said, you intended it for evil, but God meant it for good. The things that we face in our lives, the trials that we might not can see the end of the story and what God is, is doing. God wants to bring about good in, in our lives. And he's telling us we need to count or evaluate what's going on, even when it's negative stuff, as something that's good. 
Some of you recently or at other times in funerals, you've heard me use this illustration. I've used it at least twice recently um, and, and everything. Uh, y'all pray that aspect of ministry gets better. We've had like uh, three funerals in three weeks or something like that. And, you know, most of them were family members of our members, but, but still. Uh, but I've used this illustration several times through the years. You may have heard me use it before. But Be- Becky used to do needleworks, you know, uh, when we were younger, right after we were married. And, and she's uh, stitching to, together the needlework. Have you ever looked at the backside of a needlework? Backside looks like a jumbled up mess. I mean, there's just strings hanging all over the place. You can't really tell what's supposed to look like. You have to look at the top side of it to kind of see the picture of what it is. And I think maybe our lives are a little bit like that. In, in that we're looking at things from the underneath. It looks like a jumbled up mess. God's looking at it from above and God sees the perfect picture. God sees exactly what it ought to look like. And that's the way we need to view the trials of life. We might not can see the picture yet, but God is working in our lives to bring about good. Third word we need to focus on is the word let. Let. He said in let steadfastness, that thing that God's developing through the trials in your life, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Word let means that you're really holding on to something. You're using it. So he's telling us we need to let the trials that we face in our lives and let the the steadfastness that he's bringing about in in our lives, we need to allow those things to, to, to cause us to experience the full effect, the full transformation that God wants to bring about in our lives to make us more perfect, more complete, to be more like Jesus. That's, that's why we ought to view the trials of life with a joyous expectation. That's why we need to count it so, reckon it so, mark it up as so, chalk it as so, because we know that God's doing it for our good, and we need to take that tribulation and trial we're going through and the steadfastness that God builds in our lives, and we need to let it work the full effect that God wants to transform us completely the way He wants us to be. The word let more or less emphasizes you and I surrendering our will to God's will. Comes back to that phrase I, I, I told you earlier, outlook determines your outcome. Your attitude determines your actions. Job had the right outlook. Did you hear who I said, Job? You remember the story of Job? Lost everything. But even though he lost everything, Job said this. But he, talking about God, knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I'll come forth as gold. Job understood all the stuff that he was going through was for God's purposes. And God understood everything that was happening. And ultimately, God was going to cause it to bring gold into his life. Make his faith shine. Make him be more of what God wanted him to be. Can I suggest something to you? When trials come into your life, don't resent them like they're an intruder coming into your life. Instead, view the trial as a friend. Because God wants to use that friend in your life, that trial in your life, to make you more what He wants you to be. I told you we'd look at Four words, three of them were in the verses that we've already looked at. The fourth one is, is pray or ask, and that brings us to our, our second, second point this morning, the, the second way we can 
develop steadfastness as we're going through problems and trials and tribulations in, in our lives. And it, it is simply this. Not only do we need to endure the trials of life with a joyous expectation, we need to, we need to approach the trials of life with a heavenly wisdom. How do you get that? Where's the heavenly wisdom come from? You ask God for it. You pray and you ask Him. Verse 5, he said, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. He gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, a lot of times we'll use that verse just talking about wisdom in general. And, you know, there is a, a vaster probably application of it. But when you look at it in the context of what James is writing about, when he says to pray and ask God for wisdom, he's talking about the wisdom that you need to make it through the trial that you're facing. Ask God for heavenly wisdom. Pray and ask Him. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to Him. When we face trials in life, sometimes it forces upon us some realities and some questions. One reality that I think happens in our lives when we are facing trials is this. We come to the reality that we can't do it by ourselves. We come to a reality that the trial is too great and there's no way we know how to handle it on our own. And that thrusts us to trust in God. But also when you face trials, you'll have questions that will pop up in your mind, such as, God, do you really care? God, do you really love me? God, do you really see what I'm going through right now? And in either one of those instances, the solution is to ask God about it. Because when you ask Him, you're going to discover He's a generous God. He's a God who wants to give you wisdom. He's a generous God and He will give you wisdom ungrudgingly. Instead of like, leave me alone. I don't want you asking me for help. He's longing for you to come in and ask Him for wisdom. He even tells us in James 5 verse 13, if anyone among you is suffering, let him pray. If you're going through tribulations and trials, you need to pray and ask God because he's a generous God and he gives ungrudgingly. And a translation of that phrase, generous God, could just be to call him the given God. Because God promises there that when you are going through trials and you pray and you ask him for the wisdom that you need to make it through the trial, he will give it to you. Now, I want to be really clear. James isn't saying, when you're going through a trial, pray, and God will give you the wisdom to extract you to get you out of the trial. You see, that would defeat the whole purpose of the trial. Remember, the trial is there to make you more like Christ, make you more like God wants you to be. The kind of wisdom he's talking about is for you to pray and ask God for wisdom to help you get through the trial. And when you ask God for the wisdom to help you get through the trial, he will give you the wisdom not to escape the trial, but the wisdom to deal with it, to face it, to get through it. To make it through the, that difficulty, that tribulation that you're, that you're facing in your life. You're praying and asking God for the wisdom to help you learn what he wants you to learn. As you face this trial. 
Warren Wearsby, and some of you know who Warren Wearsby is because you're my age bracket or more. Some of you are wondering, who's Warren Wearsby? That's a weird name. You know, Warren Wearsby is a, a Bible scholar. He wrote the, uh, the B series uh, of uh, books, and I think he was pastor of Moody Church at one time uh, in, in Chicago. But uh, Warren Wearsby, at one point in his ministry, he had a close associate who happened to be a secretary uh, in their church. And in one year, she had a stroke, and she's struggling how to recover from the stroke. In the same year, her husband went blind. In the same year, her husband also got so sick, they sent him to the hospital expecting that he was going to die. So it's during that series of events that Warren Wiersbe sees her at church, and he lets her know, he said, I've been praying for you. And she said, well, what have you been praying about? And he said, I've been praying that God will strengthen you in all that you're facing. And she said, well, I appreciate you praying that. But she said, will you pray one more thing? And he said, sure, what? And he said, will you pray that I have the wisdom not to waste all this? Did you hear what she asked him to pray? Will you pray that I have the wisdom not to waste the fact that I've had a stroke or waste the fact that my husband has gone blind or waste the fact that he almost died? Help, pray that I will have the wisdom to let God use it in my life the way he wants to use it. Wow, she kind of got it, didn't she? I understood what the, the trials was that she was, that she was facing in, in life. Not only do we need to ask God, if you're going to ask God, you need to trust God. Man, I hope that sounds logical to you. What good is it to ask God to give you the wisdom you need to get through the trial and not trust Him with what He tells you? So James said, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man and stable in all of his ways. So the, the word that he used for doubting and, and wavering, depending on your translation, means to separate thoroughly, to withdraw from, to oppose in your mind, to discriminate or hesitate, or to have a divided mind. Now think about that in the context of what he's writing. He just told us to ask God. And then he's telling us that we need to ask in real faith, not doubting. In other words, as you're asking God for the wisdom that you need to get through the trials of life that you're facing, don't be separating it out in your mind as to whether or not you believe God will really answer the prayer or not. In the midst of praying, don't be withdrawing from it as though you think, well, this is no use, no reason for me to really pray. Don't be opposing it in your own mind as you are praying and saying, God, I need wisdom to get through this trial, this issue, this situation I'm facing in my life. In the midst of praying, don't at the same time be opposed to the fact that you're asking God to help you as though you don't think He will. Back up, please. As you're asking God, don't be discriminating or hesitating in the middle of your prayer, as though you don't think God will answer. He's saying literally, don't have a divided mind as you pray. If you're going to ask God, have a mind that's focused on believing, really believing that God will answer that prayer. You need to ask God for the wisdom that you need, but then you need to trust Him to use that wisdom to make it through the trials that you're facing. Instead of having a 
a double mind. You need to have a single mind that's focused upon God, committed to trusting in God and believing that God will answer that prayer. James gives us an illustration about the person that prays and asks God for wisdom with a doubt in mind. He says they're like a, like a wave being pushed around by the wind. Waves are pretty unpredictable. You understand that, don't you? You ever been at the beach and you kind of walk out a little ways and it's, you know, you're kind of floating around, kind of enjoying yourself and, you know, some gentle waves are coming through and you're just kind of riding over the waves and then all of a sudden the ocean decides to try and kill you? And all of a sudden there's a big wave that's crashing on top of you and it's trying to pull you down and the current's trying to take you out. Waves are really unpredictable. That, that's the point that James is making. A double-minded person, a person that's not practicing and exercising real faith in God, making it through the trials, asking God to give them the wisdom they need to make it through the trials, it, it's like someone just being pushed around by a wave. A wave being changed by the wind. You know, you just, you're, you're up one minute, you're down the next moment. You're over here one minute in your faith and you're over there the next moment. A lot of believers are kind of like corks floating around in the ocean. And that ocean is just beating you around and pushing you around and up and down all over the place as, as that wave pushes that, that cork. And what God wants us to do is have real faith in Him when we pray. James calls that kind of believer a double minded individual in a literal translation of that it could be translated two-souled like you have part of a soul that really wants to believe in God part of the soul that doesn't and doesn't want to really exercise faith in him as you're going through the trials of life or believing that God's going to give you the answer that you need Peter's kind of an illustration of that. Remember when Jesus was walking on the water and Peter said, Jesus, will you call me to come be with you on the water? And to start with, Peter's doing really good. He steps out of the boat. And as long as he is single-minded, as long as he's single-minded and he keeps his mind on Jesus, he's doing fine. But then he becomes double-minded and he quits looking at Jesus and he also starts looking at the storm over here. And when that happens, what happened to him? Started to go down, started to sink. So what happens to us in our lives. When we're facing trials and storms in our lives, if we'll stay single-minded, believe in God, sin it for a reason, He wants to make us more like Christ, He's trying to make us more spiritually mature, He can give us the wisdom we need to make it through it. If we'll stay focused on Him, then we can kind of be walking above that storm to a certain degree. But it's when we start to become double-minded and we look at the ways and the storm and the trial that we're going through that we start to go down spiritually. Instead of realizing that God is using it in our lives for a purpose, we get bitter and we get mad and we get upset about what we're facing because we fail to keep our focus on the fact that God is doing it for a reason. And James even says, if you're double-minded, don't suppose that you'll receive anything from the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. How can we become steadfast in, in the midst of, of trials? Well, we need to endure those trials, first of all, with a joyous expectation. Count it all joy, believing God's doing it for a reason to make us more mature. We need to face trials in our life with heavenly wisdom. And the only way you get that is by asking for it. He's the one that has the heavenly wisdom. He's the one that can help you make it through the trial. But the third thing that he, that he tells us about 
how to endure trials as we face life is that we need to endure trials, the trials of life with, a, with an ultimate perspective. Don't just look at the current circumstances. Don't just look at your temporary condition. You need to look beyond the trial and have an ultimate perspective of eternity. And, and to make that point, James writes about two groups of people. Depend on your translation, it will say uh, uh, the lowly brother or the poor brother. So he's talking about the poor and the rich. You probably already realize this, but you understand that trials and difficulties and struggles in your life, uh, they're not a respecter of whether you have money or not. You can be rich and still have trials. You can be poor and still have trials in your life. He writes these words. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the, the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he'll pass away. For the sun rises and with its scorching heat and, and uh, withers the grass. The sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass and the flower fails. And its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised those who love him. Talks about the poor, not just financially poor, but people are, that are insignificant in the world's viewpoint. And that may mean that they don't have finances, that they're poor and they're powerless, and they lack material possessions. Interesting to me, though, as James writes, he gives them the honor of being mentioned first. And then he writes about the rich, those that do have the possessions and the money and maybe everything we think life has to offer. Do you understand trials have a way of leveling us? Because rich and poor both can face trials and it has a way of leveling the ground a whole lot. The poor person, when that person is facing trials in their life, they can rejoice because they realize that they've got spiritual wealth. They may not have physical wealth, but they've got spiritual riches that cannot and will not be taken away from them for all eternity. They can rejoice in the midst of the trial because that's evidence that God is still working on them. He's still concerned about them. He still loves them. He still wants to make them better. A rich person can rejoice because they understand the spiritual riches that they have. Because, see, I, I'm convinced he's talking about believers, not rich who are unbelievers. Here, the rich people who are believers, they can also rejoice because they have a spiritual wisdom that can never be taken away, a spiritual wealth that can never be taken away. They might can lose their physical wealth, but not their, not their spiritual wealth. Material resources can disappear as quickly as a desert flower. That's what the illustration that James uses. People in the Middle East will have understood the illustration because in the cool of the morning in the desert, flowers spring up, but then the heat comes up and fries the flower before the day's over with. So what was a flower that sprung up is now gone all of a sudden. And that can happen with your wealth. It can happen with your, with your health. And if you're trusting in those things, those things can be gone in just an instant if you're trying to trust in those things. The, the point James is making for the rich and the poor both, 
The resource that gets you through the trials in life is your relationship with God. It's your spiritual resources and not your material resources. James writes to a church to where there were both rich people and poor people. We'll talk more about that over in James chapter 2. He's writing to a believer that's made up of, of various groups of people. And he's pointing out that trials benefit both groups. It benefits the poor because the trials remind the poor they're rich in the Lord and therefore they can never ever lose it. They look forward to eternity. They have an ultimate perspective, not a temporary perspective. The rich who are believers, the trials remind them that they dare not trust in their riches or live for riches because those things can be gone, like I said a moment ago, in an instant. What he's saying is both the rich and the poor, anywhere in between, any believer, what we need to have is an ultimate perspective where we look beyond the trial, beyond the situation, beyond the tribulation, beyond the suffering, beyond the pain. We look beyond that and we look to an ultimate time in eternity with God. When all that will be a thing of the past. And when he would have finished using that in your life to make you more like he wants you to be. Verse 12 is a beatitude similar to the beatitudes that Jesus gave us. And he says, Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for he has stood the test, and he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Today in verse 2, James started writing about joy, and I think he kind of finishes up in verse 12 talking about joy. Paul liked to use athletic illustrations, and James used an athletic, an athletic illustration here about someone running a race. When you finish a race, you get a crown, a victor's crown. When you're running a race, you know what happens when you cross the finish line? The, the labor stops, the, you know, the, the running stops, the, the race is over with. You, you, you've ended that toll and that labor as you are running the race. And the picture that he's given us here in that, I think, is this. No matter how many trials we face in our life, thank God there's coming a time when the trials will end. There's coming a time when we would have crossed the finish line. There's coming a time when God has already used the trials and the tribulations of life, working on our lives to make us more like he wants us to be. And ultimately, one day, we will cross the finish line, and all the trials will be over with, and we'll be with him for all eternity. So that's the focus that we need to have when we're facing trials. An ultimate perspective, not just an, an immediate, temporary perspective. Because he promises there's going to be a crown of life to those that love him. It's kind of interesting that he doesn't say he's going to give a crown of life to those that obey him or those that serve him, but he says to those that love him. You want to know why? I think here's why. Love is the motivation. Love is what God wants to use in our lives to motivate us to reckon it all, to count it all joy. The fact that He loves us and we love Him in return. He wants to use that as, as the reason for the imperative for us to know that He's taking those trials to work out good in our lives. For us to allow Him to make that steadfastness, use that steadfastness in our lives to where He makes us more spiritually mature. It ought to be because of love, because we love Him, that we're willing to come to Him and ask Him for the wisdom we need to make it through. And because we love Him, we believe He's got an ultimate reality for us that is so much beyond the junk that we face in this life that that's where we ought to be focused. 
because we love Him. John's going to come out and uh, give us a little bit of an illustration before they do the, uh, the invitation song. Because when you, when you think about this thing of, of our faith being stretched by trials, it gives us a picture of, of really what endurance is about. Endurance, what we're talking about today, that God wants to give us through faith and trials. Endurance is our faith stretched. Before he does that, I want to I want to ask you first of all who you're trusting in, because you will face trials, you will face difficulties in, in life, and and I don't know who or what you might be trusting in. You may be trusting in something that will fade away, like the flower. As believers, we need to be trusting in God enough that we count it all joy, that we know He's doing it for good in our lives, that we let it have its full work in our lives, so that we ask Him for the wisdom that we need to make it through the trial, and that we have an ultimate perspective. We trust Him enough that there's an ultimate perspective that He's doing it for the right reason, and one day it'll all be over with, and it all will be for good and for God's glory that we faced in our lives. If we will let it be for good. So what or who are you trusting in? If you don't know Christ as your Savior, it, it really amazes me how you think you can make it through the trials of life. I don't know what I'd do if I didn't know Jesus. I don't know what I'd do to try and make it through the difficulties and the trials of life if, if, if I didn't have Him. And if you don't know Him, I, I just don't know. I, I don't know what you'll do when you face trials. So I'm going to encourage you in just a moment as the, John does the invitation. I'm going to encourage you if you don't know Him to come. And trust in Him. And if you do know Him, I hope you'll challenge yourself right now as a Christian and ask yourself if you're really, if you're really allowing the trials of life to fulfill the purpose that God has for Him. That's why it's joy. That's why we ought to count it joy because He's doing something good in our lives. But endurance is like our faith being stretched. Most of you probably know this, but a, a, a guitar strings under tension. That's why it has the tuners on the end where you can change it and tune it. And I think what God is doing with trials in our lives is He's putting tension in our lives trying to get us to play the right note. So to start with, John's going to play something that's a little bit out of tune. For some of us, we won't know the difference. <laughs> so, yeah, I think I know the difference on that one. Sounds good, doesn't it? Now listen, now listen to it as he puts it under tension and changes it. And see, it takes him a minute to get there, but guess what? It takes a minute for God to get there in our lives too, to change us, to put us under tension. that sound better than what I did to start with? That's what God wants to use the trials in your life. He wants to stretch your faith until you play the note that He wants to hear. Let's pray. God, we, we admit to you that trials and difficulties in life, they're not fun. And many times because of our 
our human frailties. We, we just don't understand and we get caught up in bitterness and even sometimes feeling that we wonder if you even care. But Lord, as believers, you tell us that, that you are bringing those trials, you allow those trials into our lives for a purpose. And we ought to count it all joy because you want to use these difficulties to make us more what you want us to be. You're putting tension on our lives so we'll play a beautiful note for you. So while we might not enjoy it, we thank you for it. Lord, if there's someone here that cannot begin to play the note that you want to hear from their lives because they've never trusted you, I pray right now you'd call them to faith in your Son who died on the cross for their sins that through faith in Him and Him alone they can have everlasting life. Father, I pray for all of us that we will view trials when they hit our life not as intruders but as friends that you've sent to change us, to make us better for you. Speak to us now. Tell us what you want us to do. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please stand as we, uh, as we have this time of invitation. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life.